Father, this morning we come to you Thank you for thanking you for the life that you've blessed us with and for waking us up. And as we spend time together now in class to talk about substance and evidence, we ask that you bless us with the Holy Spirit. May he come and may he be the true teacher. And may each of us be inspired by him to become more like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, how many of you um, are familiar with concepts of, uh, well, I'm sure we've all heard of creation and evolution and those kinds of things, right? Uh, how about pluralism? Have you heard that before? Okay, some of you. You mind giving a definition of it? Uh, doesn't that mean what everyone believes? Okay. All right, you know what plural means, right? What does that mean? <laughs> when you do this, <laughs> huh? You have singular is one, right? Plural means more than one or many. And so pluralism is the idea that there are many ideas or many ways to know truth. Okay? So what might be right for you might not be right for me. But I'm not going to invalidate you. That's pluralism. And in fact, in the world today, we live in a society where wrong is not wrong anymore. In fact, the only time you're wrong is when you call somebody else wrong. You ever notice that? So if someone has this idea and it's so divergent even from the societal norms, oh no, we have to be tolerant, we have to be accepting, we have to be uh, unified in, in the way we deal with things. And yeah, they might be a little bit different, but we can't shun them or or put them off and write them off because that's, that's not politically correct. You've heard that kind of thinking before, right? Okay, unfortunately that idea has crept in from the political realm all the way over into even our religious and spiritual realm. And so spiritually speaking, and quite frankly, it's even from the beginning of time, we've had it where there, are, there have been many ways to reach salvation, or many ways to reach, uh, obtain eternal life, or many ways to know God. There are many paths to know God, and, and some would argue that Buddhists and, and Muslims and uh, the Baha'i or, or the Hindus, all these other faiths, that we're all actually serving the same gods as the Christian God, except we just call them by different names. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but I've, I've actually heard in a church someone pray a prayer it was actually repugnant to me but the person got up and said you know our mother Gaia and you know we know that in some cultures they call you you know and he would he used all these deities names and then in the end he would pray in the name of Jesus and it was just a little bit awkward but this was at a church I heard someone pray like that and, you know, obviously he's very influenced by what we are talking about, pluralism. So what we're trying to do today is in, in the idea of awakening the hope. We're going to be looking at a verse here right now. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, hopefully you all do. If you don't, that's fine. We're going to have it on the screen. We're going to be turning uh, to First Peter. First Peter 
chapter 3, verse 15. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And when you find it and you want to read it out loud, yes. Yeah, if you would like to, please read it out loud. Okay. Or you memorized it. Yeah. All right. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. All right, wonderful. Now, those of you who are looking in your Bibles, have you found it? Mm-hmm. Okay. First Peter, it's towards the end of your Bible. Chapter 3, verse 15. Now, I have this in the modern King James. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, I want you to focus on this one word with me. Answer. In the original Greek, this word that we've translated in English, answer, is apologia. Now, what does that sound like? Apologia. Apology, that's right. Now, what is an apology? Jesse asked me, what do you mean by that this morning down at breakfast? I told him, if you come to the class, you'll, you'll find out. And lo and behold, he's here. Have you discovered in the meantime what it was? Could you say it's a response to something else? Okay, you could say it's a response to something else. Yeah. One thing I did tell you was that it's not... It's not what we say typically in English. Uh, I owe you an apology, right? And what, what are we trying to say when we say that in English? Yeah, I'm sorry about something, right? This is not what the original meaning is. As you can see in the English, we've translated it into answer. The Greek apologia is actually literally answer, okay? To give a defense or to give your reasoning. That's what apologia means. So initially when someone said, I want to apologize, what they're basically saying is they weren't really saying they were sorry. They were trying to tell you, I want to give you reasons for what I did. You see? But, you know, throughout the years that's come to mean now, I'm sorry. All right? So an apology. What we're going to learn from a biblical perspective about this word is that Christian apologetics is something that seeks to demonstrate that there is a correspondence between truth, universal truth, truth with a capital T, and what the Bible teaches. Would it, would it be fair to say that almost every single field out there is a quest for truth? Think about it. Science, right? Think about all the sciences. Why do people want to look out, cosmologists, why do they want to look out in the heavens and, and put out satellites and, and, and telescopes out there to look at the universe? To learn. To learn. Why? Is it because we don't know everything yet? Huh. So in other words, we are innately curious. We want to know. You know, as you know, I have a three-year-old, and he's starting to speak a lot of English now, but 
you know, at that age, you know, kids, what's their favorite word? Okay, besides no. <laughs> that is true. No is very popular among that age, too. But right around three, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, they start asking why. You know, and then you give a reason. But why? And you give another reason. But why? And you're pretty much at a point where they keep asking why no matter what you say, right? That curiosity is inbred in us. It's, it's something that's inherent in us. And I think God designed us that way. It goes actually to show you the amount of processing capabilities that you and I have. We're always wanting to know why. We're on a quest for truth. Which is why I pressed you to figure out whether your name was really Devon or not, you know. Because that didn't click with me. And so I asked, is that really your name? But this is why we ask each other questions. And this is why we study. Now those of you who are in school, granted this is spring break. But can you imagine studying for the rest of your life? Does that sound like something fun? Huh? Oh, that's true. Depends on how you look at it. The Bible teaches we're going to be studying for eternity. In other words, we'll be studying day after day after day after day after day, and you still won't know everything. Now, granted, as it was pointed out, it'll be something that we want to study, you know. There are many classes that I used to attend when I was in school that I just, I'll, I'll be very frank, some of them I didn't even go to class because it was so boring. But you had to go because they required it for graduation, right? So we're not talking about an, an environment like that. We're talking about an environment where you want to go pursue something and understand it because you have a desire to learn about it. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about studying and learning and, and, and satisfying that quest for knowledge, that quest for truth. Now, it says here in the text to be ready how often? What's the word right there? Always. Now, how many of us are ready always? Yeah, not many. And we're going to hopefully, through this time together, help you and prepare you with answers so that you will have answers whenever anyone asks. Okay? And notice also here with me that when someone asks you a question or for a reason, what are they asking about right here? It says, be ready always to give an answer to anyone who asks you what? A reason for the hope that is in you. Now, how many of you have hope? Do you have hope? Okay. You know, the economy is pretty bleak. We have earthquakes and all sorts of natural disasters galore. Yes. Many things are happening in this world. The outcome is pretty bleak. But do you have hope in you? Do you have hope 
in your heart? And some of you answered already, yes, you do. And some of you went on to even uh, acknowledge that that hope is in Jesus Christ. Now, my hope today is that you will find Jesus Christ as your hope today. So, notice also then the last section here. It says, Meekness and fear. So, what is this talking about? How, how does one demonstrate meekness? What does it mean to be meek? Okay. You could say that. Humility. All right. Meekness refers to meek. To be meek is to be teachable. It's to acknowledge you don't know everything, which is pretty much along the same lines. It's saying, saying the same concepts. I mean, it takes a humble person to be meek, right? Fear. What does that mean? In the original Greek, it's phobia. Did you know that? You know what phobias are, right? Like hydrophobia. Yeah, fear of water, right? Arachnophobia. Spiders, that's right. You're definitely afraid of spiders. And I forgot some of the other phobias out there, but, uh, you know, claustrophobia. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Very good. So is this saying that you need to be afraid of people? My Bible says respect. Okay, with respect, that's right. The phobia is talking about a sense of awe, a sense of dread, a sense of reverence about something else. Now here in this case, this meekness and fear is demonstrated to whom? That's right, to everyone who asks you. So if someone comes and says, hey you, tell me about X, Y, and Z, right? And you're very pressed for time and you're, and you're wanting to go somewhere and you really don't want to answer that question and you tell the person, leave me alone, I gotta get somewhere. Are you doing this, meekness and fear? No. Now, let's extend this a little bit more. When someone asks you, are you a Christian? Are you ready always to give an answer to that? And do you do it with meekness and fear? Now, I'm sure that many of us have been in situations where we've been confronted or approached because of our beliefs. How did we respond? So this text here is telling us that an apology Apologia needs to be comprised of two things. Does anyone notice what they are? That's why I've highlighted them differently. One yellow and one green. I'll give it to you. It's comprised of two things. A message and a method. What did I say? A message and a method. Now, care, guess which one's which? Method is what color? Yellow. And the... You sure? 
Method is what color? If it's not yellow, then it's obviously green, right? The message is yellow. So your, as we develop this, we'll find out that actually truth is comprised of these two things. In other words, you can have the correct information, but you could give it incorrectly. And does that communicate truth to the other person? It doesn't. You can have an incorrect message, but you could express it very lovingly and gently. But is that communicating truth? No. You need both. You need both an accurate message and an accurate way to deliver it, a correct method. All right? So, one more time, an apology needs to be comprised of a message and a method. Ellen White wrote a letter to a person named A.T. Jones back in 1902. And this is what she wrote him. Your work has been represented to me in figures, in other words, in symbols. I, I saw what you've been doing uh, represented to me in symbols. You were passing around a comp to a company a vessel filled with most beautiful fruit. Now you can imagine like a silver platter with all sorts of delectable fruits on it. But as you offered them this fruit, you spoke words so harsh and your attitude was so forbidding that no one would accept it. Then another, capitalized A, came to the same company and offered them the same fruit. And so courteous and pleasant were his words and manner as he spoke of the desirability of the fruit that the vessel was emptied. They both had the same fruit, or you could say the same message, right? But there was a difference in their method, right? A.T. Jones, when he had his platter of fruit, now obviously he didn't go around serving fruit, but you know, this was a symbol of what he was doing. He was doing it like, I have some fruit here. You need to eat it. <laughs> Don't mean to scare you. But that's what he was doing, right? But then another came with the exact same fruit, but his mannerisms were different. What Ellen is telling us is that how you present the truth is just as important as the message itself. That is why an apology, an apologia, is comprised of both a message and a method. Are we clear so far? Okay. Moving right along then. I asked already how many of us are Seventh-day Adventists, and most of us are here. As Seventh-day Adventists, what do we believe? Very simply, just even from just the name, it tells us that we believe in the seventh day Sabbath and we are awaiting Christ's second coming or Advent. As Seventh-day Adventists, do we have a message? Yes. Do we have the correct method? 
I hope we do, right? Because as we were learning, if we have the correct message, but yet we don't communicate it correctly, it doesn't do anyone a bit of good. So are you waiting for Christ to come? Just to emphasize this a little bit more, you remember how Jesus spoke about his coming in Matthew chapter 24? If you look at verse 44, Ellen White actually quotes this in her book, Selected Messages, volume 2, page 113. It says, But be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. cometh. This is what she's quoting. She's quoting from Matthew 24, 44. She's talking about the second coming. And right after that, she writes, This is our message. What is our message? Comma, what? The very message that the three angels flying in the midst of heaven are proclaiming. So what's our message? Okay, three angels flying in the midst of heaven, they're proclaiming a message. So we call, we would call that the message of the three angels or the three angels message, right? The work to be done now is that of sounding this last message of mercy to a fallen world. What is our message again? Simply put, the, mess the same message that the three angels had, right? Well, what message did the three angels have? These three angels flying in the mist of heaven, what were they referring to? In fact, where is it found? In Revelation chapter 14? Okay, some of us might know that. Some of us might not. If you know where it's found in Revelation 14, can any of you recite to me what those messages are, those three messages? Without looking, without going there. Okay, that's number two. Okay. Give me another one. Okay, that's part of number one. What's the last one? Okay. Ellen Wright is writing to whom? You and me, right? Who's us? Assumably Seventh-day Adventists, right? Okay. She says, this is our message. So who's our? That's you and me, right? So as Seventh-day Adventists, we need to know our message. Could it be that we don't even know our own message? I mean, you're, you're, only, give, you're only able to give me 66% of the message, right? I mean... Imagine if Paul Revere was running through his town on his horseback and he says, the British are, the British are. What would have happened? That's only 66% of the message, right? Is that complete? Of course not. If we have a work to be done, this is talking about methodology, right? Our method. We need to present this last message of mercy to a fallen world. And yet, if we're supposed to do this and we don't know what that message is, boy, are we in trouble. So, 
Let's see what she says somewhere else. In book evangelism, it says, The theme of greatest importance is the third angel's message, which embraces the message of the first and second angels. All should, how many? All. All of us should understand the truth contained in these messages and demonstrate them in daily life. Why? <laughs> For this is essential to salvation. Oh boy, are we getting in hot water right now? Okay. Why? Because it is essential for salvation. We shall have to study earnestly, prayerfully, in order to understand these great truths, and our power to learn and comprehend will be taxed to the utmost. Does that sound easy? No. Maybe we don't know our message because we're taking it too easy. We're not doing all-nighters. You guys still call them that, those of you still in school? I remember one time in school, the, the longest I stayed up all night was three nights in a row. So four days and three nights, no sleep. Why? Because I wasn't a very good student. I was procrastinating, procrastinating. It was one of those classes I didn't go to. And I crammed. Now, that's obviously very taxing to the utmost. But that was self-induced. What we're talking about here is to study earnestly. Did I study earnestly back then? Of course not. But to study earnestly and prayerfully, this sounds like something that I'm supposed to be doing on a continuous basis, right? Not cramming all at once at the end. So this is an important message that we all need to learn. She continues, the present message or the present truth for this time comprises the messages, the third angel's message succeeding the first and second, the presentation of this message with all it embraces is our work. We stand as the remnant people in these last days to promulgate the truth and swell the cry of the third angel's wonderful, distinct message, giving the trumpet a certain sound. Eternal truth, which we have adhered to from the beginning, is to be maintained in all its increasing importance to the close of profession. The trumpet is to give no uncertain sound. These are very strong, very positional, almost exclusive statements. So the three angels' messages we've discovered are found in Revelation chapter 14. In Revelation chapter 14, in verse 7, this is actually where the quotation begins of what those messages are. It tells us, this is just the first angels. Incidentally, does anyone remember what the third angels is? The third angel says, if you, don't have, if you get the mark of the beast, the dragon or the image of the beast, you'll have no rest day or night. Okay. So the first angel's message, that's what we're going to look at right now. Here's actually a, a question. How in the world am I going to be able to understand the third angel's message? Because in, in, actu in actuality, she was saying, invariably, she was saying, that's the message that we need to be proclaiming at this time, right? How do I understand the third if I don't even understand the first and the second? Right? Well, so let's begin with the first one. Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And what does it say next? And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. 
There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. You can go home and count them. All right. There are 270 verses of the book of Revelation. That's more than half of the book of Revelation that somehow alludes to directly or indirectly quoting from the Old Testament. The longest passage that is quoted from the Old Testament is found right here. Now, can anyone tell me what John is quoting? Where do you suppose he's quoting from, from the Old Testament? Genesis? That's a good guess as any, right? Yeah. It's actually Exodus. More specifically, it's in the Ten Commandments. Even more specifically, it's quoting from the fourth commandment. You'll find it in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. We won't go there right now, but just go ahead and uh, make a mental note that we'll be touching this a little bit later. Now I'm going to shift gears here a little bit with that in mind and look at another quote that we have in Review and Herald, uh, January 28, 1904. She says, God desires his workers to gain daily an understanding of how to reason logically from cause to effect. Do you remember Paul in Athens? He was, in, he was before the court of Areopagus, Areopagus, I'm sorry, and he was also on Mars Hill. This is supposedly where Mars Hills is over there. What was he doing there? He was contending with the Athens, Athenians, and this is what Ellen White tells us in the book Acts of the Apostles. It says, his intellectual power commanded the respect of the learned, while his earnest logical reasoning and the power of his oratory held the attention of all in the audience. His hearers recognized the fact that he was no novice, but he was able to meet all classes with convincing arguments in support of the doctrine he taught. What's he doing here? Doesn't this sound very familiar to what we were talking about in Peter? Right? 1 Peter 3.15. He was giving a what? An answer, a response to people who had questions, right? And he was doing it how? What was his methodology? What was his method? Yeah. He had earnest, logical reasoning. He, it was powerful, Right? It goes on to say, Thus the apostles stood undaunted, meeting his opposers on their own ground, matching logic with logic, philosophy with philosophy, eloquence with eloquence. The people were carried away, she says a few pages later, the people were carried away with admiration for Paul's earnest and logical presentation for the attributes of the true God. And what was he specifically talking about? Of God's creative power and the existence of his overruling providence. What message was Paul preaching? Remember that third, three angels message, that last part of the first angels? It says, worship him. Worship what? Somebody, right? Him. Assumably God. What kind of God? One that made all these things. Heaven, earth, sea, and springs of water. We're talking about worshiping a God. Not just any God, but the Creator God. Isn't this what Paul was preaching to the people in Athens? He was telling them about the Creator God. Now the thing is, you and I, we, we live in a world where the rampant 
most predominant thought is evolutionism. That we are all here as a product of processes that took millions and millions of years. That there was no creator, things just happened quite literally by chance. Now you can probably meet anyone on the streets and ask them to talk to you about evolution and they'd be glad to do it. In fact, they might know about it more than you do, right? But if someone were to stop you on the streets and ask you about creationism, are you always ready to give an answer of the hope that's in you? In other words, my friends, what I'm asking is, could you explain to somebody how a hummingbird hovers? Or, or how clouds are formed? Or why in the world a platypus has a bill like a duck and lays eggs when it's clearly a mammal? You and I have a hard time talking about what we are supposed, supposedly supposed to be knowledge about, right? We as Bible-believing Christian Seventh-day Adventists have a message. It's a message that incorporates the messages of the three angels. The first angel's message is talking about the Creator. Do we really know our message? Let's listen to what Jesus did. Christ's Object Lessons, page 20. So wide was Christ's view of truth, so extended his teaching that every phase of nature was employed in illustrating truth. So through the creation, we are to become acquainted with the Creator. How do we become acquainted with the Creator God? Through what he created. What did he create? Hmm? He created everything, right? At least that's what the Bible says. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. The book of nature is a great lesson book, which in connection with the scriptures, and that's a very important point there. When you look at nature, you can observe it and you can come up with certain conclusions. But sometimes your conclusions don't match up with what the scripture says. And we'll talk about that with our time together, how to deal with that. The book of nature is a great lesson book, which in connection with scripture, we are to use in teaching others of his character and guiding lost sheep back to the fold of God. And then she concludes, as the works of God are studied, the Holy Spirit flashes conviction into the mind. So going back to 1 Peter 3.15, Peter tells us we need to have an what? We need to have an answer. How often? Always. We need to have an apologia. We need to have an apology. This is talking about Christian apologetics. It seeks to answer can you give a rational defense for your beliefs? Do you really know what you believe? And can you 
answer your belief to anyone who asks about it. Because quite frankly, my friends, if you don't know what you believe and you don't know even how to answer it, why are we here? Why am I calling myself a Seventh-day Adventist? Why am I calling myself a Christian when I don't even know my stuff? I'll tell you what, you go out of this campus, you go out of the world, you will find people who know their stuff. You will find scientists, you will find teachers, you will find students who know their worldviews and who can articulate it very well. And you go out there this, this Saturday and you start knocking on their door and you want to conduct your little survey. I'm not trying to scare you from not going, okay? But you get my point, right? And they discover, oh, you're, you know, wanting to do this because you have a, uh, you know, a religious persuasion. And they, and they obviously perhaps don't have that and they, they start questioning you. Am I capable of providing a defense, an answer. Too often, I think, we aren't equipped with the proper answers. Which is why, hopefully, in our time together, we can learn some about these answers together. So, the first question that we're going to answer is, does God exist? I mean, it obviously doesn't even make any sense to talk about what God did or whether his Sabbath is the seventh day or whether he's coming back again or anything for that matter if we don't even acknowledge that he in fact exists. Does that make sense? What does it matter what a person does if that person doesn't even exist? This is actually teaching us a very fundamental biblical principle. It's actually a very fundamental, fundamental truth in life. To be is more important than to do. Who I am determines what I do. If I don't even exist, there's no point in talking about my works. If you take that to a spiritual level, okay? Your good works, your righteous acts doesn't matter one bit if you aren't alive in Christ. You have to be alive in Christ first before you can even do the works of righteousness. In fact, Isaiah tells us that your righteous works are as filthy rags. So, we need to answer the fundamental question, does God exist? Now, be honest, how many of you have ever really determined or answered or asked this question for yourselves? Anyone? Okay, a couple of you. All right, more hands are going up. <laughs> Some of us have struggled with this question. Does God exist? Most of us in here probably, let me ask that question as a survey question. How many believe that God does in fact exist? Okay. How many of you have absolutely no question whatsoever that God exists? Okay. All right. So can you safely say that you're 100% convinced that God exists? All right. Now let me ask you this question. Is there any evidence out there that can prove unequivocally 100% of the time that God does exist? 
Okay, I heard one yes and I saw some head shaking no. Which is it? Is there anything out there? Like the God principle or, or, or something that someone can discover and go, wow, I have found the grand proof of God. Yeah. Okay, I know what you're talking about, okay? We're going to actually talk about what you're trying to articulate there, okay? It's, we're going to talk about it when we talk about evidence, and um, I'll give you a very special term for that, okay? Yes? Ah, my friend has hit a very interesting point there. Yeah. Think about it. If it was 100% provable that God exists, would we have a choice in the matter? Think about it. There would be no debate. So everyone would automatically have to accept it. But God, the Bible teaches us, doesn't operate that way. Because love, by definition, requires a choice, right? And if I don't choose, it's no longer love. If there's no choice, I'm just a robot. I'm not an intelligent, sentient being. This is why it's not 100% provable. Now, admittedly, I'm here in front of you to tell you that I too believe that God exists. And almost conclusively, we can prove that he does. I mean, in other words, like 99.9999999% provable. That's my position. I will freely admit, though, that it's not 100% provable. But it is sure close. And the reason why is because God wants everyone to exercise faith. And we'll be talking about faith here in a little bit. Okay? So, we can actually compartmentalize the world in actually two things. And I, I know I got four words up here, but you're going to hear these terms when you're out there. Okay? What is a theist? Incidentally, theist comes from the word theo, which means... God, and that's what I call my son, ironically. His name is Theophilus. So, uh, Theophilus means friend of God. You know, philios, eros, agape, right? Philios means friendship love. So, Theophilus means friend of God. And we call him by his Korean name, Teho. But anyway, that's beside the point. He's here, if you haven't seen him. You may have heard him, but <laughs> what is a theist? Someone who believes there is a God. Okay? Doesn't necessarily state whether it's a... a huh? Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean... It doesn't specify what kind of a God. It just simply means that a person believes there is a God. What is an atheist? You know what the word A or the letter A means here, right? 
Okay, it's a negation, right? So it means the person does not believe there is a God. Notice with me something very curious. To have an atheist, you must first have a theist. Isn't that interesting? Think about that for a while. In fact, most atheists out there use theistic terminology to prove that they're atheistic. Did you know that? Well, let me, let me um, I'll probably develop that as we go on, but just to give you an idea. An atheist who doesn't believe in God obviously has no way of rationally talking about concepts like love. Okay? To be a true atheist, you would have to acknowledge that everything was natural. So love would be akin to indigestion. It's a chemical process. It's just certain neurons firing in your brain that makes you have this sensation or feeling or understanding that you have this thing called love. You see? In other words, the acts of, for instance, Hitler and the acts of Mother Teresa to a true atheist should have no difference. You, you get what I'm saying? If you're truly naturalistic, you have no basis in talking about morality. Why? Because morality actually presupposes that there is a moral giver. Now, some of us who've actually run into people who counter this will say, oh, well, wait a minute. Morals are dictated by society, you see. And we'll, I don't know if we'll have time to develop that thought, um, but because of time constraints, I can't really go into that whole area. But that is a very strong argument or a strong apology for the reason that God exists. And there are certain strong counter-arguments to it. But then there are counter-arguments to those counter-arguments as well. But like I said, that's probably a little bit beyond the scope of what we're trying to do here. So theists are people who believe in God or in a God, and atheists say there is no God. What is an agnostic? You've heard that term before, right? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What is an agnostic? Okay, you could say that. An agnostic is someone who laments that there's not enough evidence to make a decision. Okay? Someone who says, oh, I don't have enough of the information, so I'm not going to make my decision yet. In other words, it's a fancy way of saying it's someone who's a procrastinator. Why? Because I will tell you that the evidence out there is more than abundant. And I'm using that word abundant on purpose. You'll see that word here in a moment. Okay? It's, in other words, what they're saying is, I'm too lazy to go and evaluate the evidence to determine whether this is true or not. Now, don't, if someone tells you they're agnostic, don't go tell them, oh, you're just too lazy to look at the evidence, okay? Because remember, in, in, in 1 Peter 3.15, not only must we have a, a message, we must also have the correct method, right? But just for your information, you, this is what a, an agnostic is. In fact, I had a... a a person I discoursed with a few times, I, I did a similar presentation like this over at uh, Bloomington uh, University of Indiana or Indiana University, I don't remember how they use it, you know, the Hoosiers, right? Uh, we had a, a staunch, he was a philosophy major, a staunch atheist, he would come to the lectures, he came almost every night. 
And uh, he came up to me one time and he, he talked to me. You know what, Jed? I will have to admit that agnostics are nothing but closet atheists. And I thought, that would, I thought what he said was extremely profound. Because in actuality, he's right. Most or all agnostics, you could probably say most agnostics are closet atheists. They just haven't come out of the closet yet. Okay. They say, oh, there's not enough evidence, but there is. They're just really, literally, just in the closet denying that there's anything outside the closet. Okay. So the other agnostics who haven't come out of the closet yet maybe aren't really atheists, but maybe they're more skeptical. And what's a skeptic? What, is, what does it mean to be skeptical about something? You doubt? Okay. In other words, you're saying you can't, you, you doubt that you can prove the existence of God with any certainty. Okay. Quite literally, these two here are nothing more than this. Or they just haven't come to the truth and realized this. All right. So in reality, you only have theists and non-theists. It's the same thing with God. You notice that? You know the phrase, the devil made me do it, right? Very popular. Is it true the devil, did he really make you do it? Can the devil make you do anything? No. He can put the brick in front of you that you would stumble over and fall. If you're watching where you're going, you would see it. But it's my choice if I decide to walk around like this, right? Probably that wasn't the best illustration in the world. But the point is, the devil can't make you do something that you don't want to do. That's actually a very wonderful gospel truth. Did you know that? So, who do we have to fear? Do we have to fear the devil, really? No. In fact, Ellen White tells us that the worst tyrant in the world is who? Self. Oh, wait. So, in other words, I'm, I'm more scarier than the devil? Okay. The point I'm trying to bring out is this. On one hand, you have God. Typically, we say on the opposite side, we have who? The devil, right? And we say they're on opposite sides of the coin. That's not necessarily true. It's either God or not God. And under not God, you can have the devil, me, etc. You get what I'm saying? Does that follow? Okay. Same thing here. Theists or everything else. All right? Okay. Now, who is correct? <laughs> Well, we're all here asserting that the theists are correct, right? And you know what? That is a very unpopular position to take. You know why? Because when you say that I'm right and you're wrong, oh, man, you're already stepping on all sorts of toes out there. Yeah, we're talking about pluralism, what we mentioned earlier when we started. Certainly, you would agree that it is reasonable when I suggest that if there is a God, he would have to make evidence available to us to determine his existence, right? Think about it. God is omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. He is beyond your and my comprehension. If God chose not 
to reveal himself to you and me, would we know anything about him? We wouldn't, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't be God, right? But because he chooses to reveal something about himself, this is the only way we understand or know him. Does that make sense? You don't know I exist, okay? In fact, you probably didn't know I existed until you came here. Now, I know I'm only human, right? But until I came to you or, or communicated to you, hey, I'm over here, you would have lived your life blissfully without knowing that there was a person named Jed. Well, Jed Daniel Lee, right? Right? Imagine if God didn't say a word. If he didn't communicate a single thing to us. You and I would live our lives without knowing anything about him. Now, granted, this is a little bit hypothetical because if he didn't reveal himself to us at all, we wouldn't even exist. Okay? All right? So, we can understand that to know that there is a God, we would have to we would have to first accept that for us to know anything about a God is this God would have to reveal something to you and me. And as he reveals something to you and me, that what he reveals to us, we would call evidence. Okay. Now, what we're going to have to do is talk very briefly about... Um, we're going to have to talk very briefly about classical laws of thought. Now, these are commonly attributed to Aristotle. You guys know who Aristotle is, right? You've heard his name? Okay. Uh, in college, depending on what classes you take, they make you read his works. Uh, there are three classical laws of thoughts that are foundational to scholastic logic. And these laws are accepted as analytically true. Now, that phrase there means it's true by definition. Analytically true. It means it's just true by definition. You have one is a law of identity. You have another law of the excluded middle and another law of the non-contradiction. Now, if you don't understand a lot of all this right now, uh, just write these terms down, go home and, and, and do your own research into them. But what we're going to focus on, on is actually a law that doesn't even have one of these three names. Okay? It's actually a conjunction of these two. The law of the excluded middle and the law of the non-contradiction. When you take those two together, you, you get what you would say is, well, let's put it in layman's term. What, what this is basically saying is that an object cannot both possess or not possess the same kinds of characteristics. Okay? In other words, let me put it a little bit more simply. When I say something, if it's precisely stated, it's either going to be true or it's going to be false. Okay? That's what these symbols mean. All right? It's either going to be true or it's going to be false. It can't be both. Okay? Either when I say, I am Korean... Either 
I am Korean or I'm not. Now, I guess genetically speaking, you could be half and half, you know, but let's be a little bit more direct. If I say I am a woman, that's either true or false, right? Okay, you understand what I'm saying? What's so funny? Yeah, you can't be really half and half. Although nowadays it's very possible, as you know, in Oregon we have here uh, the very first husband who's had a a baby, right? Yeah, but uh, that's that's neither here nor there right now. So um, let me let me introduce you to this guy. Have you heard of this man? Okay, this is to show you how biased our education is. Okay, this man was born circa 980 near Bukhara, which is Uzbekistan. Incidentally, we'll talk about Uzbekistan here in a little bit. Not a little bit, but in the later presentation. He died in 1037 in modern, what we would know now as modern-day Iran. He was a Persian physician and a philosopher. He was an astronomer, chemist, ge geologist, logician, paleontologist, mathematician, physicist, poet, psychologist, scientist, and teacher. He wrote almost 450 treatises on all sorts of topics. We have about 240 that have survived. Uh, in particular, 150 of what he wrote concentrate on philosophy, and 40 of them actually talk about medicine. His most famous works are the Book of Healing and the Canon of Medicine. And this was actually the standard medical textbook in medieval universities even as late as 1650. This guy was extremely accomplished and he was a classical f Islamic philosopher and this is what he talked about when he talked about the law of non-contradiction. He says, anyone who denies the law of non-contradiction should be beaten and burned until he admits that to be beaten is not the same as not to be beaten and to be burned is not the same as not to be burned. Okay? In other words, you're, if you're being beaten and burned, you're either being beaten and burned or you're not, okay? There's no halfway. So this is what he's talking about. Either it is or it isn't. Now, I'll leave that up there for a little bit so you can wrap your minds about, around what he's saying. But the point what I'm trying to get at is this. When we talk about in classical, logical schools of thought, when you have a precisely stated proposition, it is either true or it's false. And interestingly enough, would you know it, that the Bible starts out with a precisely stated proposition. You know what it is? What does Genesis 1-1 say? We all know it together, right? In the beginning, God created that's right. So we have a precisely stated proposition. In other words, the Bible never questions the existence of God. In fact, it just simply declares it. When you look at these first words, it, it tells us that there is this entity called a God, and we immediately recognize that there's no proof given to support his existence. Nor is there any proof to support his creative power. 
It's simply understood. It's a given. Thus, what the Bible is implicitly saying is this. It's stating the precisely it's stating precisely the proposition that God exists. If you want to go one step further, you can say this God is the creator God. Okay? God exists. That's what the Bible comes out and says. So, when you understand that that's a precisely stated proposition, either the Bible is telling the truth or it is it's lying or it's false, right? So either God exists, that is either true or it's false. It can't be both true and false at the same time. That's what we're talking about. Okay? Are we clear so far? Okay. God exists. This is the truth of the matter. Either he does or he doesn't. There's no middle ground. You cannot logically, rationally affirm that both the existence and non-existence of God. There's no middle ground. So, for us to determine whether he does exist or he does not, what do you suppose we need to do? <coughs> what do we need to do? Say it louder. Look at the evidence, right? We know he exists or he doesn't based upon the evidence. And we know we, if he didn't reveal himself, there would be no evidence. But the fact is, we know about him, so he must have revealed himself. So let's look at the evidence. In fact, let's see what a theist says on the matter. Now, most of us, uh, we, we've quoted her before, but we, we, we're probably pretty familiar with the book Steps to Christ. In, in 1892, uh, this prominent theologian wrote a 126-page book that was translated now into more than 140 languages. And incidentally, this theologian only had uh, an approximate third or fourth grade education. In it, on page 105, it says, God never asks us to believe without giving sufficient evidence upon which to base our faith. Simple enough, right? It goes on. His existence, that's what we're discussing right now, right? His character. We'll be talking about elements of his character sporadically in future presentations. The truthfulness of his word. We will be specifically talking about this aspect here shortly. These all are established by testimony that appeals to our reason, and this testimony is abundant. Okay? Testimony is another way of saying evidence, right? This theologian, this theist, declares that there is evidence. What kind of evidence it says? God never asks us to believe without giving sufficient evidence. Notice it doesn't say absolute evidence, right? Or incontrovertible evidence. Or evidence that you cannot deny. It doesn't say that. It says sufficient you can know about his existence, his character, the truthfulness of his word. How? You can all establish this based on the testimony or evidence. And what is the nature of this evidence? Tell me. It's two things we know, right? It's firstly, 
reasonable, and secondly, it's abundant. Remember I said that word earlier, right? The evidence out there for the existence of God, the evidence out there for His character, the evidence out there for the validity of the Bible, all of that evidence is reasonable and it's abundant. The passage continues, yet God has never removed the possibility of doubt. We talked about this, right? Our faith must not, uh, our faith must rest upon evidence, not demonstration. Those who wish to doubt will have the opportunity, while those who really desire to know the truth will find plenty of evidence on which to rest what? Their faith. That's a very powerful, powerful statement. Now what we're going to do is because it's almost 20 after. And I believe our next session, oh, it starts at 11. Oh, this starts, this over at quarter after, not quarter, or quarter till, not quarter after. My apologies, we can go on a little longer. <laughs> so Sonny, can you please edit this out? <laughs> We're going to go over some definitions, is that all right? Okay. Um, here's some words I'm going to just throw up on the screen for you. When we use the word prove, what do we mean? To give evidence, okay? What I want to establish, that's a very good definition, okay? To give evidence. What I want to establish is this. When I say prove, I don't mean that we can always demonstrate God's existence empirically. Do you know what that means? Okay, like for instance, uh, I have an object in my hand, all right? And if I drop it, uh-oh. And I do it again, right? What we're doing here is an empirical test. Does that make sense? Something empirical is like saying that my 15-month daughter weighs 25 pounds. Okay? If I stated that to you, it's a precisely stated proposition, right? My 15-month daughter weighs 25 pounds. Either I'm telling the truth or I'm not, right? To test this empirically, what would you have to do? What? Weigh her? What is that? You're doing empirical. You're, you're, you're studying the evidence empirically, right? You're picking up my daughter, you're putting her on the scale, and you go, aha, 21.2. Jed, you are false. Right? When we talk about proving God's existence, we cannot necessarily test God's existence empirically. Okay? Another example of empirical evidence is, is for instance, the, the composition of water is composed of what? One water molecule is two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen, right? Which is why we call it H2O. 
Empirical evidence is used oftentimes to establish the validity of a case or a position. We know that. We can do that. It's perfectly valid to do that. But there are so many things in life and in this universe you cannot test empirically. Right? God exists. Can you really test that empirically? Well, fortunately for us, Empirical evidence is not the only way to arrive at a proof, okay? You don't have to use empirical evidence to prove something all the time. Here's a very, I don't know if you'd call it humorous or not. How many of you have brains? Okay, how do you know you have a brain? Have you seen it? Have you touched it? Have you tasted it? Have you smelled it? Yeah, that's a good one. Have you used it? <laughs> How do you know you have a brain? I haven't seen your brain. I don't think you got one. Because it's hard. Huh? Because it's hard. Uh, that would imply you, you, it, could, it could mean that you have rocks in your head, too. Rocks are hard. You get my point, right? Now, granted, empirically, we know we have a brain because we've seen dead people and cut open their heads and, you know, that kind of stuff, right? And we see this thing in there, and it's this little gray, spongy matter. Well, it's not spongy, but it's really interesting. Have you ever felt a brain before? Yeah, I have. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I had my gloves on. Yeah, trust me. <laughs> and it smelled like formaldehyde, but it's all right. Here's the next phrase, prima facie. In law school, they teach you that you can build the validity of a case, you can build a valid prima facie case. Prima facie is a Latin expression which means on its appearance or by first instance. Okay, that's why you get prima facie. Sounds like prime face almost, right? Prime meaning first. I think in Spanish, is it primero or pre, means first, right? So this is what it means, on first appearance or, on, on, or by first instance. This means that when you examine it, it appears to be self-evident from the fact. Okay, a prima facie case is something that is self-evident from the fact. In other words, this is a case that has evidence that would be sufficient to prove a particular proposition or fact. What we're going to do tonight is to present a prima facie case for the existence of God. We will not be providing empirical proof of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. One other terminology we're going to have to define because it's so many times, oftentimes, used incorrectly is the word faith. Now, faith, it, it seems to, this misconception, I don't know who started or where, obviously probably the devil, right? <laughs> but the concept is sometimes faith is something you exercise or do blindly. Have you heard that? Blind faith? You've ever heard that expression before? 
I want to tell you that the Bible doesn't support that definition of faith. I know it's not true. I don't see any reason for it to be true, but I still believe it is. That's why I have faith. Nuh-uh. That's not what biblical faith is about. Okay? In fact, I referred to this last night when I was just giving you a short blurb of what this series is going to be about. I referred to a text in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, 1. And it says there, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Notice with me something. It's a little word is here. What is this saying? It's saying faith is defined as what? What's the first word? Substance of things hoped for. Are we here to awaken our hope? Yeah. So we need to know the substance of how to awaken that hope, right? The substance of that hope. So faith is not only substance, but it's also evidence. Hence the title of this series. Okay, Substance and Evidence. Faith will allow us to awaken the hope that is in you so that we will always be ready to give an answer to those who asks us about the hope that's in you with meekness and with fear. And that is why we're looking at the substance and the evidence today. So what we're, ta what we're talking about is, is that if your faith is based upon some conjecture or, or, or some fantasy or illusion... That's not real faith, because faith, by definition, has to rest on substance and evidence. True biblical faith must have these things. Otherwise, it is not faith. Okay? So, with that, we're going to be looking at the different types of evidences. Now, mind you, based on the time constraints that we have, this is not an exhaustive list, all right? But it's still probably undoubtedly a, an ambitious list, all right? Uh, there's plenty of information out there, but today we're just gonna, today and the next two times that, or the next two days, we're, actually wait, today's Friday, right? Yeah, well, two more days. The next two days, we're going to be giving just a, a brief introductory, uh, introduction to all the different kinds of evidence that exists for the evidence or the existence of God. In other words, what we're going to be doing is looking at the tip of the iceberg. Did you know that most icebergs that you see above the water, the great majority of it is actually underwater? Yeah. So we're just going to look at the tip, what we can see right now, and that's all I'm going to show you. What I, what I would encourage you to do, what I'd hope that you would do, is awaken some hope in you to go home and actually study to see whether these things are so. Okay? Don't take my word for it. Do like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. Even though they had the most famous evangelist come to their town, his name was Paul, and he did an evangelistic series to them. They didn't go, wow, Paul said it, therefore I believe it. No, they, what did they do? They studied the scriptures, how often? Okay, they did it daily to see whether these things were so. Notice with me, this is just an aside, completely free, all right? For them to study the scriptures to see whether those things were so, what did they have to do first? 
Mm, good point. But look at the text it says there. Huh? Well, what does the text say? Look in Acts chapter 17, 11. It says, these are they that are the more noble than these, right? Uh, the Bereans were they? Okay, they received the word with all readiness of mind. So in other words, they had the word. How I received the word, sometimes, in many cases, probably in almost all instances, dictates or determines how I interpret it. If I have not received the word completely, it is of no value to me. In other words, I have to fully receive it in order to be able to search it daily. If I don't even accept that the Bible is the true word of God, you know, no matter how much I read it, well, I do know of a few people who, who started to read the Bible with the intention to disprove it, and the Holy Spirit still worked on their hearts, and they became believers regardless. But, but it's very important on how we receive the word, and it, that's actually first and necessary in order for us to go and study it. So what I'm counseling you today is, I know I'm not as famous as Paul, so therefore, you must go and study it on your own even that much more, okay? So just don't take my word for it. We're just going to be looking at the tips of the iceberg. Go home and find out what's under the water, all right? You'll be amazed. So with that in mind, I want to introduce you to, I think it's seven lines of evidence. We're going to be talking about the evidence about the Bible. We're going to be talking about evidence of Jesus Christ. We're going to be talking about the evidence of a catastrophic universal flood. We're going to be talking about the evidence of a special creation. We're going to be talking about the evidence from a cosmological argument. We're going to be talking about the evidence from an experiment, experiential argument. And we're going to be talking about the evidence from the law of biogenesis. Now, there's probably words up there that some of us aren't very familiar with, right? Or do you all know what all these words mean? Okay, well, it's okay. I didn't know what they meant either a long time ago. Well, not that long ago, but it feels like it. <laughs> We're going to be talking about these different evidences. And fortunately for us, we won't be able to deal with all of this in the remaining 15 minutes. But we do have a session that's going to be dedicated to talking about the evidence of the Bible, the self-authenticating scriptures, and we're going to talk specifically about also the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how those two things prove or provide us with a prima facie case for the existence of God. Okay? If you didn't know it, those two things help establish that there is a God. Okay? So this is what we'll be talking about tomorrow. And we're going to be looking at that in the presentation entitled, Has God Spoken? Is the Bible What It Claims to Be? That'll be tomorrow. Well, that's talking about those two things. The fossil record and special creation, or the theological argument, this is what we will deal with the final presentation. This is going to be very involved. That's why I've reserved it for that hour and a half block of time. We'll be covering this on Sunday, and I entitled that, Is Evolution a Religion? And I don't know why it's not coming up. Did it just switch it? 
Yeah. Uh, we're having technical difficulties. Oh well. We'll see the title when we get there. And we'll be talking about uh, the fossil record. We'll talk about teleological argument. We'll talk about what those words mean. And we'll talk about it in the context of creation and the flood. Okay? That leaves us with these three. And so with our remaining time today, we'll be talking about these three things. And the longest one is actually going to be the cosmological argument. And so these three things will be what we will be discussing today, but I'm going to be switching the order. Um, we're going to be talking about it in this order, the cosmological argument and the law of biogenesis, and then we'll deal with the experiential argument last. So the first line of reasoning or the first vein of evidence that we will be looking at is the cosmological argument. And you know what? I think this is probably a very good place to stop. And we'll pick up this tonight. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the fact that you chose to reveal yourself to us. That you are knowable. That you are, to a degree, understandable. Help us to probe deeper, help us to become diligent students of the two textbooks you've given us. Firstly, of your word, the Bible, and secondly, the book of nature. Help us to be so comfortable and aware and knowledgeable about these topics, not just because of knowledge's sake, but because we want to have a deeper relationship with you. And in us knowing these things, Help us then to be even that much more of an effective witness to others and to be ready always to give an answer of the hope that is in us and help us with the Holy Spirit to do it always with meekness and with fear. To that end, bless us, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.